I'm Sarah Gabriel. We're here at the 1901 Arts Club in Waterloo in London and I've just been rehearsing with the wonderful pianist, composer, arranger Ian Farrington for our show Dorothy Parker Takes a Trip which we will be doing at the Oxford Playhouse on Sunday the 27th of May at three o'clock in the afternoon. Part of the Ashmolean Museum's American Cool Festival. I'm also here with a collaborator of mine, Richard Williams. Richard and I were hurled together to make this particular show a few years ago. Yes, um, <laughs> we were down at the Dartington International Summer School and Festival and the artistic director suggested that we did something together for the following year. We knew we were going to do it about a woman, didn't we? We knew it was going to be a solo yeah, show. Yeah, and then by an amazing piece of synchronicity, after several days of tramping around in darkness, not knowing what we were doing, <laughs> we sat down together and absolutely at the same moment said, what about, and here came the chorus, Dorothy, Dorothy Parker. Parker. We then assumed, as it turned out completely wrongly, that Dorothy Parker was a bit of an international traveller and that the way in which we would get the music involved would be to follow her journeys around the world, picking songs from the time that she was alive, from different countries. How wrong were we? Dorothy Parker made one trip abroad and hated it. Uh, <laughs> so our title of Dorothy Parker Takes a Trip was pretty much scuppered, it seemed. Because early publicity at this point had already commenced. Yeah. So we were stuck. So we put the title slightly onto one side and started putting together a show which revolved around the extraordinary history of what happened to her after her death. Lillian Hellman had been a friend of hers for a number of decades, I think. Lillian Hellman being yeah. a slightly younger writer, very much in awe of Dorothy Parker and her set, the Algonquin Roundtable, all those writers and journalists. She assumed, and I suspect that Dorothy Parker perhaps once or twice in her cups had said to Lillian Hellman that she would inherit yeah. the estate and, of course, the money that could be made from that estate because Dorothy Parker was a popular writer in all well, sorts of ways. Well, a writer and, and she wrote film scripts. A script doctor yeah. as well. So she had a lot of money coming to her in terms of royalties, although at the end of her life she wasn't particularly productive and spent more than she was earning. But there was this fantastic back catalogue which was going to be very, very valuable for somebody. And Lillian Hellman presumed it was her. Yeah, exactly. But what she hadn't accounted for was Dorothy Parker's not well-known social conscience. She had become increasingly involved with the National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People, yeah. the cause of Martin Luther King. It was in August 1927 that she first started to get this conscience, as far as we know. Yes, she'd supported some people who were on strike because of some immigrant workers being wrongly accused of a robbery, and she'd been on a march in protest against that. The Algonquin Round Table people, heavy drinkers, went up to Boston one afternoon and carried placards. It was a bit, the love is on the march. And then she was arrested for, it was described as loitering and sauntering, which I like as a particular charge. She had to pay $5 for a fine. And of course, the press, because of this whole onslaught of the lovies, decided it was important to interview her. When they asked if she was guilty of this terrible crime, she said... Well, I did saunter. So, but you're right, it was that point that she declared herself a socialist. Anyway, let's just get back to the show. So Lillian Hellman was more than put out when the whole estate didn't come to her, but went to Martin Luther King and the National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People. 
she was so put out, in fact, that she refused to pick up Dorothy Parker's ashes from the crematorium and left them there for six years. At the end of six years, the crematorium got in touch with Dorothy Parker's agents and said, we're about to chuck these ashes out unless somebody comes to collect them. So the agent sent a secretary down, collected the ashes, and they were put in a filing cabinet where they stayed for about another 16 years. So it was over 20 years after her death that the ashes were finally removed, by which time Martin Luther King, of course, had been assassinated, but a peace park, a memorial park, had been built in Philadelphia, and that was eventually where the ashes came to rest. Our piece revolves around this very long period when the ashes were in the agent's office. Sarah, you play the mm. secretary in the office. That's right. We do have moments where Dorothy Parker turns up in the room, but she's mainly present as the urn. We imagine the secretary has taken this urn out maybe not on a daily basis, but pretty frequently, and has used it as a bit of a confessional and spoken to the urn with the ashes in it, perhaps in the hope of receiving some wisdom or some witticisms from the ashes. Who knows? We've set it in real time on the day that the ashes depart the office. So we get to cover some of Dorothy Parker's life. She really was quite an extraordinary figure, and I think there's a, a resonance for lots of people she had this enormous talent. She was very hardworking when she started her career. She slightly was derailed by real life, which happens to everybody. So there's a poignancy in that, I think. Yeah, her relationships with men were pretty much hopeless. Yes. They seemed doomed pretty well, all of them. Not a good chooser, as people no, say. No, I think that's right. But at the Algonquin Round Table, she more than held her own with the men who were there, which at that period of time was pretty unusual. Oh, my. It must have been captivating, addictive. The endless Algonquin lunches that blurred into parties that ended the next lunchtime. The weeks became weekends, cleaved onto each other, drinking poker nights, sniping, as though solitude was a disease. It was all a little frantic, as I understand. Barely a moment for you to write. The glitz, the stars, New York at its brightest. Tallulah Beckhead, Charlie Chaplin, Harpo Marx. The glitter, the gossip, the drinking and the low mark of prohibition. The moonshine making with the gin still in the bathroom of your friend's apartment. Irving Berlin and George Gershwin playing duets together. And you, the imp at large, becoming increasingly fast drinking and quick-witted and then sharp-tongued. The regrets the next day because you insulted someone and your ill-gotten love affairs after drink decided things for you. What? You're afraid of being alone? Yes, I understand. The Algonquin Circle was very much of its time. Extraordinary catalogue of writers and composers, all overlapping and all knowing each other, working sort of collaboratively and sort of in rivalry. Gershwin, Hoki Carmichael, writers like Hemingway, Irving Berlin and George Gershwin used to play duets together at parties. Yeah. Hemingway obviously decided he didn't like Dorothy Parker, but mm. nonetheless, they spent time together, yeah. fell out in Europe. And then... Scott Fitzgerald. Dashiell Hammett, Charlie Chaplin and Tallulah Bankhead. All these people yeah. would be hanging out together and sharing stories. Yes. Salvador Dali crossed their paths as well. Mm. 
in musical terms, not only did you have the people who were native New Yorkers, but you had a lot of the emigres from Europe as well, didn't you? Yeah. A thriver in that environment was Kurt Weill. He came over having started his career with Bertolt Brecht and writing those vehement communist yeah. pieces. Yeah. Always quite arch and witty, but very yeah. serious music yeah, a, a lot Cer- of the time. Acerbic music, yeah. I would say. And then it morphs into this much more Broadway kind of mode and produces September Song and a whole new catalogue. Yes, and also worked with extraordinary lyricists, people like Ogden Nash, Yes. then also obviously Ira Gershwin. So there was this mixing between them all that Mm -hmm, they'd, mm -hmm. they'd share their talents and their skills. I grew up listening to the music that people like Kurt Weill and Gershwin had written. I was obsessed with the Cole Porter songbook and Ella Fitzgerald and Sarah Vaughan singing all these beautiful songs. And of course, they were all having drinks together and and sharing ideas. A number of the songs we've chosen are by Harold Arlen. He wrote Over the Rainbow for The Wizard of Oz, and that is one of the most well-known songs in Western popular culture. He, by reputation, used to get into cabs in New York and have cab drivers singing Over the Rainbow and then saying, ah, oh, George Gershwin, um, which must have been crushing, absolutely bruising for the poor man. Harold Arlen, for me, is he's possibly my favourite writer, composer of the era, because he had an ability to get wonderful lyricists to slightly prick the bubble of romanticism and to also isolate really vulnerable moments. There's one song in particular called The Morning After that we've put in the show in which someone is waking up in their all too familiar bedroom and there's a lovely line where they say, that lonely feeling I know I'll never shake, that lonely ceiling that waits for me to wake. It's quite a simple rhyme, but that is the essence of quite a lot of the stuff that Dorothy Parker encapsulates in her short stories and her bittersweet poems. And Yeah, we shouldn't give too much the impression that this is depressing. <laughs> I mean, no, it's-, it's not. We've got things that people have heard before, Bewitched by Rogers and Hart and... and that wonderful Noel Coward song, I went to a marvellous marvel- party. party. Quite for no reason, I'm here for the season as high as a kite. Living in error with Morden Kepferro, which couldn't be right. Everyone's here and frightfully gay. Nobody cares what people say. Though the Riviera is really much queerer than a room at its height. Yesterday night, I went to a marvellous party with Nuno and Nada and Nell. Dorothy Parker and Nell Coward did spend some time together. I think perhaps a little bit frosty with each other. Yeah. There was that moment when they both turned up to lunch or in the same suit. And uh, Noel Coward said, you look almost like a man. And she said, so do you. Obviously some Gershwin, because I think it's impossible to tackle New York at that time and not have Gershwin's music. Love is Here to Stay. And then a couple of Rogers and Hart songs that are just absolutely lovely. We've tried to capture those slightly more melancholic moments of Dorothy Parker's writing and what happened to her, but also this wildness that was going on in New York at the time as well, the, the yeah, during really, and after Prohibition. Yeah, real ex- exuberance. Going nuts. Yeah, yeah, incredibly yeah. creative. And of course, the rise of film, which obviously a lot of the time was going on in Hollywood, but these stars were coming back and doing all sorts of things on Broadway. And that was where a lot of the intellectual stuff was going on in New York yeah. as well. Well, it was that kind of lunacy of the, the jazz age after the First World War, wasn't it? Kind of strange euphoria. Yes. We did the first show at the Dartington Festival, didn't we? In and Devon. In Devon, which was a delight. And you after that would quite like to do the show again in some way. Yeah. A little bit after that, I was away for a job and I 
came back and there was a postcard, you know, those post office cards where they say while you were out and they tell you to go to the sorting office and pick something up that hadn't arrived. And I missed that deadline to pick it up within 21 days or something. I was a bit concerned that I'd missed something important. I had no idea what it was that I hadn't received. So I did a little bit of a public call out to people I knew and said, is there something you've sent me? Is it a score? Is it some music? I got a response from the Dartington admin team saying, oh, the technician from Dorothy Parker, we think he probably tried to send you back the urn from the show, the urn with the ashes in it. The next which, which, happened, which, which are not real ashes, let's be clear well, about this. And this is, this is important, of course, because first of all, that would be macabre. And secondly, yeah. the post office weren't quite convinced, were they? Because the next <laughs> thing is we had a tweet from the post office saying, hello, post office here. Can we just clarify what was in the urn? And we said, oh, just some stunt ashes for the show. And they said, were they human remains? And <laughs> there was a genuine concern that we had been sending an urn of authentic ashes in the post. And at, w- at which point they disappeared. They, we never saw them again. <laughs> so we think... Confiscated by the post office. Confiscated by the post office. They're probably in some forensic laboratory now being checked. So then we're on to our second urn. We had a rehearsal at the Royal Academy of Music. Yes. Which was a great place to be. And I'd brought along urn number two for us to rehearse with. Yes, very efficient of you. Well, that that (laughs) bit was efficient. Leaving it behind was rather less efficient. (laughs) And then when we got back in touch with Royal Academy of Music, somebody, it seems, had stolen the urn with the ashes. So that was urn number two disappeared as well. The next booking we had was at the Petworth Festival, I turned up with the typewriter. We'd yeah. organised all the filing that would be in the office. Looking very authentic. We had the filing cabinet. Filing cabinet, the desk. The everything was there. Hats, Homburgs. And, and as we unpacked everything to do the dress rehearsal, discovered that I had forgotten the urn. <laughs> the, the new, the third replacement urn. Third urn. So I then ran round Petworth, which is a small, incredibly expensive <laughs> town. <laughs> The nearest thing I could get to an urn was something at a garden centre, a metal container, which cost more than £50. It needed a lid. So I then went into a hardware shop and discovered, much to my delight, that there was a saucepan with a lid, and the lid fitted the urn that I'd bought perfectly well. Except, of course, being Petworth, the uh, the saucepan was about another £60. (laughs) And then there was some paint to spray them both the same colour. So the replacement urn cost nearly 100 quid in the end. But it looked great, Richard, even though it was half flower pot, (laughs) half saucepan. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that's the one we'll be seeing in Oxford. Speaking of Oxford, that's where we'll be on Sunday the 27th of May as part of the Ashmolean Museum's American Call Festival. And we hope to see you there. Absolutely. Come along. It's a joy. Everyone's here and frightfully gay Nobody cares what people say Though the Riviera is really much queerer Than a room at its height Yesterday night I went to a marvellous party With Nuno and Nada and Nell It was in the fresh air And we went as we were And we stayed as we were Which was hell Poor Grey started singing at midnight And didn't stop singing till four We knew the excitement was bound to begin When Laura got blind and Dubonnet and Gin And scratched her veneer with a Cartier pin I couldn't have liked it more I went to a marvellous party Elise made an entrance with May You'd never have guessed with a fisherman's vest That her chest had been whittled away Poor 
Lulu gefreit und Chianti und trug zu einer Esprit Maurice made a couple of passes at Gus and Freddy, who hates any kind of a fuss, did half the big apple and twisted his truss. I couldn't have liked it more. I went to a marvellous party. We played the most wonderful game. Maureen disappeared and came back in a beard and we all had to guess at her name. We talked about growing all gracefully, and Elsie, who's 74, said, A, it's a question of being sincere, and B, if you're supple, you have nothing to fear, and she swung upside down from a glass chandelier. I couldn't have liked it more.